You're listening to a River Life Fellowship message. We hope this message encourages you and enriches your life. For more information about us, visit us at riverlifefellowship.com. Okay, I'm going to try to share a little bit this morning. Um, one of Jesus' methods of teaching people was always to let them do, do something. Uh, if you really study the Bible, Jesus, a lot of the way he, his teaching approach was this. He would let people do stuff or he would demonstrate it himself, but then he would put them in a situation where they did it, and then he would explain it to them. Y'all got that? That's not the normal way we do it. Normally we want to instruct first and then do it, which there's a certain amount of wisdom and logic in that, but... You know, if you study out of Luke 9, 10, 11, you see Jesus sent out the, the disciples and even the 70 before he had ever even taught them how to pray, and which is sort of a mind-boggling thought if you think about it. Is then when they came back and, you know, and had their little conversation with him, then they realized, man, we need to know how to pray if we're going to be going out, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, casting out demons. Wouldn't that be a good thought? You know, why don't you teach them how to pray first, Lord? I mean, you know... Think about it a second. I mean, that's the question I had. Why in the world was, is the Lord's Prayer after all that? I mean, they needed that prayer before they even got out there. So, so a lot of times the Lord doesn't do what we expect Him to do. And uh, I feel like I've got a point of this. The point is this, is I have never had so many comments and questions about a message I didn't preach. Okay, the message I didn't preach last week, I got more comments about it than I have ever any message in my whole life of preaching. Okay, I've never had so many comments about that message that I never preached last week. And it was because I felt God was really trying to demonstrate something. And, um, and you know, I'm going to try to explain a few things this morning. I'm not going to try to explain what God was necessarily trying to demonstrate, except to say this. I don't feel like I have ever in my life experienced so much conviction as I experienced last week in church. And the problem was, when I left here, I didn't get, I wasn't, that conviction wasn't lifted off of me. And I had the most convicting week of my life, honestly. I mean, I just felt just under the hand of the Lord, uh, you know, in the Bible where it talks, they were, they were pierced to the heart. I really felt the experience. I experienced that piercing in my heart in a significant way uh, this past week. Uh, and it all started last Sunday when the Lord started moving. And um, and we didn't, you know, do what we normally do, which is a good thing, because we really need to give the opportunity of the Lord to, to do what He wants to do. Um, so I'm going to try to share this morning some things I feel like the Lord showed me about worship. And I think it's really important, I think it's critical uh, that we hear what God's trying to say to us. Amen? Y'all with me? So, and I have an awful time this morning because I hate, in one way, using that overhead up there because I can't tell you, I can't, there's some things that's hard to write down for me. You know what I'm saying? Some things are hard to write. It's hard to write your heart sometimes. I don't have the gift of writing, um, unfortunately. So, in fact, some people have talked to me about my pronunciation on these things. Like, gosh, you need to learn how to pronunciate sentences, man. We can't read that stuff you're writing. Uh, but let me just uh, just start. And one of the things that I feel is on the heart of the Lord um, in John 4, if you want to turn there, and I just make no bones about it. I just can't seem to escape this 
this situation in John 4. I mean, I, I honestly had planned on doing two or three messages out of John 4 because I felt like God really spoke to me and, you know, I just can't really, you know, get away from it because I feel like there's something in here that we've got to discover um, from the Lord. So, Lord, help us. Y'all all right out there? I know y'all sleepy because it feels like it's early and all that, that stuff, but you'll be all right. John 4, verse 4 through 5. It says, uh, but he needed to go through Samaria. Everybody say needed. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Sychar. How do you say that, somebody? Sychar? Sychar, okay. Near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Okay, so um, the need to go through Samaria was not just a geographical consideration. It wasn't just that he, you know, uh, you know, I got to go to my house, so I got to get on Highway 21 to go to my house. That really wasn't the real issue at hand, although there could have been some ge- geographical considerations based on where he was at physically, but this is something spiritual. Um, if Samaria was a very significant place in the history of Israel, it was very significant. Some significant things happened around Samaria. And what I would like to uh, do is explain how this place called Samaria came into being. And it'll give you a little bit of a history lesson first, and you'll know the Bible a little bit better, but there's something more important than that. There's a spiritual significance to this. And I think it can help us to understand what the real heart of the Lord is, what He's really trying to communicate. It'll help us understand this whole uh, you know, encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well. It'll, you know, it really gives you some some real insight if you really understand where in the world this Samaria. So I, I'm a sort of a believer when something happens is to always go back to the origin of it. You know, what was it meant to be? What was it meant to do originally? Because a lot of wonderful things they start out wonderful and they go bad. If we could get back to what they were, you know, intended to be, then we can really connect with them. So, are y'all with me? So, why don't you turn in your Bibles to um, 1 Kings chapter 11. And this sort of tells the story of Samaria, of how Samaria began as an as a, as a actual place in history. Um, 1 Kings chapter 11. So, we're going all the way back to the very beginning. And remember, what I want to do is I want to take you somewhere. I don't want to just give you a Bible history lesson. Although I just I love this kind of information out of the Bible, but just knowing this doesn't help you many times spiritually. But I think God wants to help us spiritually this morning. Uh, in verse 26, uh, it says, Then Solomon's servant... And somebody needs to turn off one of those air conditioning units to stop that noise, because that's what it is. Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zareta, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. So uh, this, this person rebelled against the king. This caused uh, him to rebel against the king, Jero- uh, Jeroboam. So Jeroboam's mom rebelled against the king, and Jeroboam you know, followed his mama's lead. So mamas, be careful about your rebellion because your children will follow you. That's the number one lesson you need to get this morning. Mama, if you're being rebellion, the whole house may wind up in rebellion. And that is not good. Uh, anyway, I'll just throw that out. 
Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. You got that? Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment after the two were alone in the field, and the two alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. This is a real prophetic act he was doing. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give you and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all of my tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. So you see what's happening. Solomon really got into error in his life, and the Lord was upset with him, and the Lord was taking away part of the kingdom of Israel from Solomon. He was taking it away from him. And this is what was going on uh, you know, with this prophetic thing that was happening. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I have chose, because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. You got that? And, and to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself, to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desire, and you shall be king over Israel." Then it shall be, if you heed that all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes, my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam rose and fled to Egypt to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So you see what this situation situation was. The Lord was going to take ten of the tribes of Israel away from Solomon, away from David's household, and give it to another man. And Solomon found out about this word that was given this guy and went after this guy to kill him. This guy was smart and fled town, went down to Egypt, and stayed there until Solomon died. I'm not going to read a, a bunch of this in, in uh, 1 Kings 12. But what happened was Solomon's son, Rehoboam, not Jeroboam, but Rehoboam, became the king in Solomon's place. And Rehoboam was an idiot. Just put pure and simple. And the people came to Rehoboam and said to Rehoboam, Listen, Solomon, your daddy, just taxed us to death to support his lifestyle. All the luxury, all the horses, all the girls, all the stuff. And we were paying for it, and we want some relief from this. So Rehoboam said, well, give me, a, give me a couple days and I'll get back to you. So Rehoboam goes to the elders and asks them what to do. And they said, listen, man, if you'll just you know, bless the people, take care of the people, and remove this tax on them, they will love you and follow you and serve you. 
that was the, the counsel of the elders of Israel. It's basically cut the taxes, man. You know, you can get anybody to, we can vote for people who cut taxes, right? <laughs> well, he went to his buddies, his friends, the guys his age, his peers, and said, talked to them, and they were, their answer was, no, you know, you can't do that, man. Don't do it. They, you know. So he goes before the people and he says, you think my daddy was rough? My, his, his, uh, my little finger is going to be like my daddy's thigh. In other words, I am going to bear down on you much harder than my daddy bore down on you. That's basically what they told the people. Guess what the people did? said, we don't want anything to do with you, man. We don't want anything to do with you. So they broke away from Solomon. The ten tribes broke away and went to their house said, we don't want to have anything else to do. I bet you a lot of you didn't know that, but that's really what happened to Israel. So Israel, they had a, a major church split. Uh, in Israel, I mean, the first one's in the Bible, and because of a stupidity, and and through all that, Jeroboam came back and became the king over those ten tribes who had left Israel, who had split. The only tribe that basically was left with with Solomon's house, with Rehoboam, with David's house, was Judah and Benjamin. Everybody else left. Think about it. The ten, you know, the the, the you know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's sons, all his sons, Reuben, Gad, all of them. They had left. Israel had separated, and they became you know two separate nations. And in verse twenty-five of chapter twelve, just read it so you'll have it. And then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. That's all I wanted to say there. So he went and built this place. Um, so. Um, we have two kings. Israel split. We have Rehoboam was king over Judah. That's in chapter 12, verse 17. And Jeroboam was king over Israel, 1 Kings 13, 35. There was two, two, you know, two houses, so to speak, two kingdoms. Um, the term Samaria, now this is where Samaria comes out. I just told you all that. The term Samaria includes all the tribes over which Jeroboam made himself king. The expression cities of Samaria which is 1 Kings 13, 30, is used for the kingdom of the ten tribes, what, what they call the northern tribes. Northern Israel became Samaria. You got that? Northern Israel. Israel, God's people, became Samaria over time. Uh, Shechem was the first capital. I just read that to you, the northern kingdom. It, Shechem was equivalent to Jerusalem, except for it was for the ten tribes. Jerusalem was just for Judah and Benjamin. We got... Judah over here, we got Jerusalem over here, we got Shechem over here. Another separate place. And Sychar, what we just read where Jesus shows up, with this woman was either a name applied to the town of Shechem, or it was a village just outside of Shechem. That's argument with you know people who study this stuff about this. There's no real surety of what Sychar really was, but they say just from a physical standpoint. At best, it was like Pineville is to Charlotte. If you've ever been to Pineville, you can't tell where Charlotte ends and Pineville it begins. You got that? It'd be like what Mount Ulla is to Morrisville. You know, what is Mount Ulla? You know, it's down the road there. You know, just cross over there right before you. It's where the hospital... No, that's not where Mount Ulla is. That's something else. That's Mount Morn over there. You know, like, duh, you know. I thought Morrisville Hospital... The hospital's in Morrisville. It's actually in Mount Morn. So that's what... 
at best this thing was, at worst it was, or it may have been the same place. And this is where Jesus had this encounter. Okay, he had this encounter with this woman at the very place, or at least, you know, the place, the village, the, the offspring, the suburbs of where the capital of the ten northern tribes was at. Okay? And what happened was later Assyria waged war against both Judah and Samaria, or Israel, the ten tribes, and defeated Samaria. Just whipped them, beat them, and took over them, took a bunch of their people, sent them down there, and they mixed in with the Jews that were there. And, you know, they intermixed in marriage, and, and this new race of people, basically Jews and Assyrians, and we have a Samaritan. And so, you know, we've heard stories about finding the ten lost tribes of Israel. Well, Samaria is the ten lost tribes of Israel. Are y'all with me on that? So when you see those things on the History Channel, when they're looking for them, there you go. We found them in the Bible. Now, what I want to do is is tell you just a couple things. Uh, In verse 28 of chapter 11, and this is sort of just not really on the point, but I think this is really important. When I was reading it, it really stuck out to me. It says, The man... Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. All right, Jeroboam, listen to this, Jeroboam had the potential to be like Joseph. He had the potential to be just like another Joseph, yet he became the father of the Samaritans. You hear that? See, today you may have some potential in your life to be something in God. You really may have that potential. But like Jeroboam, there's a real danger in you missing what God has for you. And you're missing your destiny, missing your purpose in life. And that's really what happened to Jeroboam. God was really going to use Jeroboam. God spoke to Jeroboam. God destined him to be that king. But Jeroboam went off in his life and became the father of the Samaritan race, which we're going to see in a minute what they became, how wicked they became in their worship and how they became idolatrous you know, idol worshipers and all this this kind of stuff. Now, um, let's read verse, 1 Kings 12, verse 25 through 33. Are you all with me on all this so far? But believe me, i got a real point to all of it. I know it's a lot of, a lot of information, but I, I think this is great information. We need to know this. I guarantee there's people who came here this morning did not know this happened after being Christian for years. And that's a terrible testimony that we didn't know they had a church split. All right, it says in verse 25, he built Shechem. I read that. And Jeroboam said in his heart, verse 26, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. He started getting getting nervous about what he'd done. If these people go up to offer, offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then, then the heart of this, of this people will return back to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's insecure. Man, First time they go back up and worship the way the Lord said to worship. <laughs> That's what he was saying. God, you know, we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. That's what God said at that point. That's the way he dictated it to be. And if they go up there, they're going to not like me no more. They're going to like this other guy, and they're going to they're go back, and they're going to, you know, do me in. So he's starting to go bad right there. Uh, Therefore the king asked advice. I don't know who he asked it of, but it was wrong people, obviously. He was like Rehoboam, talked to the wrong folks. And he asked advice. This is sort of interesting the way they wore this. Then he made two calves of gold and said to the people, 
It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods. In other words, hey, even though God wants worship like this, that's just too much what God's asking for you. Why, why do we want to do that? You know, it's going to cause trouble, man. Why don't we just... This, let, let this be our gods. Let's do it this way. Okay? O Israel, which... You know, here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Even, even giving them credit, you know, a couple golden calves for delivering Israel from the bondage in, in uh, Egypt. I mean, he was a pretty sly guy because he knew that poured on the strings of their heart. You know, he knew a true Jew getting delivered from Egypt was a big deal. And so he knew what strings to touch. You know what I'm saying? He knew what things to touch in the heart to get them to do what he wanted them to do. So touch that little string, touch that little place in their heart that's tender and sweet towards God. He's really the ones who brought you up out of Egypt. This is how you need to be worshiping. This is where you need to be worshiping. Y'all with me? It's bad. It was bad what he was doing. He was a highly manipulative individual. Um, and he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Think about it. Bethel, the house of God. Remember Jacob's ladder, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he sets up one of his things there and then put him old poor old Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places and made priests. Listen to this. He made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Again, in that day, it was a bad thing to do because God says these are where the priests are going to come from, from the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. You got that? The month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burnt incense. So he didn't want the people to go to Jerusalem. He was afraid of losing the people, so he set up this new type of worship. Okay? And he changed the worship. He changed how they worshipped. He changed where they worshipped. That's really what he did. He set up this whole new system of worship. That's Jeroboam. Okay? He also changed the requirements for the leaders. He just let, you know, in that day, God said the Levites, tribe of Levi, they're the ones. He just said, you know, it said plainly he could let anybody. Anybody could do it. Um, so in order to keep the people, Jeroboam added and changed things concerning worship and leadership. You got that? In order to keep the people, he changed things. He set up a different order of worship. Everybody got that point dearly connected in their little mind or their big mind. So the sin of Jeroboam, okay? Listen to this. This is the sin of Jeroboam. When we begin to adjust, adjust worship and leadership to satisfy Je- people, we will fall into the sin of Jeroboam. You got that? When we begin to adjust worship and leadership to satisfy people, we are falling into the sin of Jeroboam. That's a pretty powerful thing. The potential for Jeroboam to be a Joseph was never realized. Never. That potential that God had placed in that man, his divine destiny, his divine calling, slap was not, not realized. Instead, he became distinguished. This is what the Bible says. 
as the man, this is in 1 Kings 14, 16, if you want to read, the man who made Israel to sin. The man who made Israel to sin, who could have been a Joseph, that's what the Bible says about it. He made Israel sin. And this policy, quote, policy, of making Israel sin was followed by all the succeeding kings of Israel. You go and study the history of Israel's kings, the ones who came after him and after him and after him and after him, they all followed that same policy of making Israel sin, making Israel, causing Israel to worship in a way that God didn't really want them to do. It really wasn't of the Lord. And Ahab and Jezebel are some of the more notable fruits of Jeroboam's sin. Everybody knows about Jezebel, right? You can't be in a church somewhere. You get blamed for being Jezebel, even if you're not. <laughs> it's pretty popular. I'll never forget one time when I was working and got on the elevator and there was these black girls and they were having an argument and one of them screamed, Hey, you Jezebel! <laughs> I was like, man, <laughs> I need to get off of here. They were Christians too. That was the thing about it. <laughs> but Jezebel and Ahab, these are, are from the line of Jeroboam. They were bad. Everybody knows that. That's who Elijah had that showdown with. And really was challenging Israel, the northern Israel, the northern tribes. All right, now let's go to Matthew 16. Now I'm going to take this thing. We've got the history behind some of this. You understand where we're going, you know, that. Now let's apply this. Let's start applying this to us, okay? Because, like I say, I love to know stuff, but I need to know how. What does this mean to me, Lord? I mean, <laughs> that's great to know all this Bible information, but come on. Tell me what it means to me today. Tell me what it means to this church, um, because I believe God wants to tell us something. Y'all with me? Matthew 16, everybody knows this is a great story in the Bible. Uh, Verse 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter... Lord bless his heart, took him aside and began to rebuke him, like he's, you know, going to rebuke Jesus, <laughs> saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, this is Jesus, Get behind me, Satan. You're an, you're an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Okay? That was Jesus' little, little comment. So Peter was being influenced Peter was being inspired by Satan at that moment. And, of course, you know the story. You've probably heard it preached, you know, how the Lord was asking, Who do men say I am? You're the Lord. You're the Christ. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. Then this happens, right in that same conversation. Next thing you know, God's revealed something to you. Next thing you know, the Lord's rebuking Peter, saying, Satan is speaking through you. Satan's using you because you, Peter, are being influenced by Satan. You, Peter, have your mind on the things of on the interest of man, not on the interest of God. That was the whole issue there Jesus was addressing. You've got your, your mind is sitting on, on the interest of men. Isn't that, doesn't that sound like sort of Jeroboam's thing? Are you, you see the connection there? The interest of man, what man wants, what man desires, versus what God wants, versus what God desires. Now, let's just ask this question. Have we been taught that it's okay to set our mind on the interest of men? That's just a question. Have we been taught that? That it's okay to set our mind. This is what people want. This is what we'll do for them, um, etc. Have we been taught that? I mean, I'm just asking you a question. I don't know the answer. 
on a personal level is worship more about satisfying yourself and your desires? Now, ask yourself that question. When you worship God, I'm talking about on just on a personal level. I'm not talking about on a church level. I'm talking about when you worship God, what is it really about? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. When I come to church, do I feel like I worship God? Do certain things happen? Do I feel a certain way? Did a certain thing happen in the room? Did I feel this? Did they do this? Did that happen? Now, ask yourself that question. Is it about... Your interest is about your desires. And I think that's a very important question. And here's another question. Has the church become too focused on what the people want? Has it, you know, this is what one person told me who leads worship. I just get burned out, man, when I'm trying to get people to experience the Lord. That's what they said. I get burned out real fast. It just burns me out to do that. Why is that? Because they want people to experience the Lord so bad. All right, let's go back to John 4. I just want to ask you those two questions. Let's keep all this in mind. Are y'all with me? Are y'all tracking with me on this? John chapter 4. Because we're talking about worship this morning. Okay? And we're trying to talk about what God wants in worship. Um, verse 6 and 7. Um, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria. So here, remember, this is a woman of Samaria. Her ancestry. Jeroboam. All these years down. So here's in Jesus' day. All these years went down through time. And now there's no such thing. Israel is, here's what Israel is in Jesus' day. It's just basically the southern kingdom, Judea and Benjamin. The northern tribes are gone. Dan and Asher and all those people. They've been lost. They were lost. They were gone. So when the Bible and the New Testament talks about Israel, when we talk about Israel today, it's just, it's just what was left of the southern tribe. It's not the northern tribe's gone. They're Samaria. And so Jesus has this encounter. You see, Jesus knew Samaria was an important place because it went back to the very roots of who Israel originally was. And they went, he, you know, so that's why I said he had to go through there. He, he had to. He knew that God's heart was, was towards these people who were profane and perverse and had gotten so messed up in their worship. And he was going there to try to restore these people. It's really what this is all about. Jesus was trying to restore these people to real worship. That's, that was really his heart. I want to restore you to what real worship is. And I think we, when I said a few weeks ago, when I felt like the Lord said the church is like the woman at the well, we have sought stuff, something. We've had five men, and we got one now we're not even married to. So we're seeking something. We're hungry for something that's in us, that was put in us by God. And we're trying to find it in people. Let's get the best preacher. Let's get the best prophet. Let's get this so somehow they can satisfy this thing in us. And that's really the picture of this woman looking for something to satisfy me because I'm not satisfied. And Jesus knew there were, these people had something in their genetic code to worship Him because they really were Israel at one time and there was still a little bit of that genetic code in these people. So He went there to restore these worshipers. That's really what He was doing. He was trying to restore worshipers, to find them, help them. 
And I'll say this, the woman at the well was the result of the long-term effect of worship based on man's selfish interest. She was the result of it. A dissatisfied, thirsty person. Dissatisfied. Couldn't satisfy the thirst that was in her. There was something in her crying out, but couldn't be satisfied with nothing. Five or six guys, give me ten. Give me twenty, but they'll never satisfy me. I said that. And here's the great thing. God has given mankind a thirst to worship. Every person in this room is born with something to worship God. There's a song in all of our hearts, and that song may not be singing a song like, you know, sing hallelujah. The song, there's something in you looking for expression. You know, there's something in you looking for expression. That's, what, that's really the worship that's in you, that's crying out to be expressed, to crying out to be released in us. Personally, we all have it, and we see it. Um, this is interesting. Have y'all seen that commercial? And we're not supposed to watch TV this week, from what I understand. Cut the TV off this week. There is something like that, I think, it's this week. Is it this week? Turn the TV off week? Oh, in two weeks, there's a turn the TV off week. Y'all supposed to do that, but here's a commercial. There's a commercial on TV that I think is pretty cool. It's an NCAA athletic commercial. You know, if you've been watching basketball games, you've seen it. But it shows a lot of these NCAA athletes, and it shows, like, one is a, she's a, and I ain't against girls playing softball, but you ever seen them girls that play softball in college? I mean, they're big-bone girls, most of them. In other words, you wouldn't mess with them. I mean, I don't know. You wouldn't want to get out and play on the field with them girls. They'd whip the fire out of you. But they got a girl. She's a real girl. She's on the, she's on the NCAA team, you know, a college team. And she's a catcher, which catchers in baseball are tough. They're, that's the toughest position, man. You've got to be tough to play catcher. You've got to be mean to play catcher because it's a hard position to play. You've got all this equipment on. You're hot. You're miserable. You've got this bat flying by your head. You've got this pitcher trying to throw a ball that half the time he's you know you're getting hit and people are going to run over you at the plate and stick their shoulder into your chest to, you know when you're trying to block home plate i mean it is a very difficult position i used to play it so i was just beat my scrawny hide was beat to death but i was faster than everybody and could throw the ball real hard in those days so i was successful at it i didn't let them run over me i just would let them through yeah go on through i i'm not going to stop you you got 25 pounds on me, man. But uh, this girl talks about her NCAA baseball or softball, and then she talks about her other part of her life, studying to be some kind of animal something. And she says, and it shows a picture of her. Half of it's got the her girl face, and half of it's got the the, the thing you put on your face. What do you call it? I forgot. What they, your mask, your pictures, your catchers. Half of us got that, and she said, I need both of those things in my life to make me complete, to make me who I really am. Um, because it's talking about she's not going to play professional. She's going to get a job. But so, so my point is this. What I see in that is God has created all of us to worship personally. Every one of us in this room, we have this thing. And, so it can, and it's, and it's going to be expressed in you in different ways. It may be like your job. Maybe her, in a sense, in a sense, I don't know, in a sense her worship was playing softball you remember the chariots of fire it's an old worn out story the guy and it's a true story he said when I run I feel the pleasure of the Lord 
That was worship to that guy. He was worshiping God when he was running, as, as crazy as that sounds. So we all have this ex- something in us that's wanting to express, that's wanting to, to be released on a personal, individual level. And it's from God. And if we don't, if we don't honor that thing, if we don't let that thing out, whatever it is, you're going to be messed up as a person. That thing's got to come out. I mean, it may be a very natural-looking thing on the outside, but to you, it's worship because that was what you were created to do. That's who you really are. But there's this other part to worship. There's a part of corporate worship when everybody comes together. And here's the problem when everybody comes together. Everybody can't just do their thing. That's what they call anarchy. And that was the problem. He just said, well, anybody can be the leader. Anybody can be the worship leader. Anybody can be in charge. And it created problems in Israel. So everybody comes to church. This is the way I want worship to be for me in church. I want this to happen. And if it ain't happening, I'm mad. I'm sitting there. See, God has this divine order that He wants to release. I have no idea what it is. Okay? I know this. You know, we've got to find it. Be careful what I say here. I got lost in strong opinions about all this. If we worship God, are y'all with me so far? If we worship God in spirit and truth, the thirst in our souls will be satisfied. See, that was what was going on with the woman. She wasn't worshiping God in spirit and truth. She was trying to get something out of these men, and she was never satisfied. That's what's wrong with us. We're trying to get something out of somebody. We're trying to get something out of worship. We're trying to get something out of something, and it's not satisfying, so we're dissatisfied. This ain't it, Lord. This ain't it. The song in you needs to find a true expression. Who has God made you as an individual? Who has God made this church? Okay? Who has God made this church? And when this church finds out who we really are, this is what God's placed in the heart of this church. This is how the worship should be expressed here. doesn't mean it needs to be expressed in the church down the road like that. Because it's true here. It's true in our hearts. It's a corporate heart. This is what we're looking for. This is the expression that God's given us. Are y'all following me? Now, there are some basic things that God wants for everybody, but being truth and in spirit really is a pretty undefinable kind of kind of thing. If our if our worship is based on what it does for us, then we will never be satisfied. We will never be satisfied. And I feel like honestly that's what we do when we come here to worship God. We want certain things to happen. If they happen, we're happy. And it's wrong to do that. That's not real worship because that's based on what you want. Now, personally, you should do that. I believe that. Personally, you should pursue the thing that's in your heart. Are y'all with me on this? And remember what worship is to the soul, what water is to the body. Okay? Remember that? I said that a few weeks ago. Worship is to the soul, what water is to the body. And I just think if it's based on what it does for us, if worship is based on what it does for us. We're going to be like the woman at the well. We're not going to be satisfied. Our thirst is not going to be satisfied. We're going to always be looking for something to satisfy us. You know, like I said, the latest thing. What's the latest thing in worship? Let's try that. Maybe that's it. You know? And the latest thing never works. It sort of peters out after a period of time. You know, uh, that was good, you know, but now it's gone. 
Oh, the greatest song. Yep. Used to be, they lasted for months. Then it was weeks. Then it's like, sang it one time, it was good. You try it again, it's dead. You know? And that tells you that something, something's wrong here. All right, and John, are y'all with me so far? John 4, verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will need to worship on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem. Worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jew. But the hour is coming now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Okay? So... There is a corporate song that needs to be expressed. We need both the personal expression and the corporate expression. Okay? We need both to be healthy and whole. Now, hang with me just a little bit more and we'll be through. John 19. Somebody told me, it'll hang you out to dry all this stuff. We'll just hang you out to dry. Uh, John 19. When you start messing with worship, you get this all this resistance, you know, stuff. Not really from the Lord, but remember the last time I, t- a couple of weeks ago or whenever it was, I talked about Jesus hanging on the cross, saying everything's finished, and he was thirsting. Remember, I thought I had a message called the thirst of Christ, and that he was after everything was finished, Jesus was still see- he was seeking worship at his death. Now, that's what you know Jesus was looking for, hanging up there on the crosses. He was looking for those worshipers, seeking worshipers, and. Uh, and it says, you know, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, said, I worship. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when he received the, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is something Don Casperson was telling me. I did a little more research on this sour wine. Sour wine in the, the Greek word refers to a diluted vinegary wine. It was cheaper than regular wine. It was a favorite drink of laborers, soldiers, and other persons in moderate circumstances. So in other words, it was a poor man's drink. You know, there was a, there was a people who had money had better wine. The poor people had this old vinegary, nasty wine that was sort of diluted and just didn't taste that good. This is not the same wine that was given to Jesus before he was crucified, the dead in his pain. This is a different thing. This is as he was dying, uh, too late to dead in his pain. He's, you know, he's, they were trying to satisfy his thirst. The point that I think, it, you know, as, as Don and I discussed this, this was the worship that the world offered Jesus hanging on the cross. The world offers him cheap and diluted wine, cheap and diluted water, with man's selfish interest and desires. Okay? That's, that's, what, was, that's, that's what, what that is a picture of. This diluted, cheap wine is a diluted form of worship that the world gives Christ. It's polluted with their desires, polluted with what they want. You got that? You see that picture? Now, our vision for worship, because this is the question that we had to ask. What is our vision for worship? Our vision for worship begins with laying down our interests and desires and embracing His interests and desires. Now, that's really what we've got to come to here. As corporately, is we've got to come to a place about what we're looking for in a worship service. Because ultimately, we've got to lay those things down. 
remember when the guy from Poland was here a few months ago or a few however long ago it was, it was a while, and he was saying, what causes God to turn his face? Well, I think God turns his face when we offer him this diluted wine, this cheap wine, this, this mixture, that this is the way I want it, attitude. And if this ain't the way it get, happens, I don't like it. Are you all with me? And I think that's something that God wants us to do because somebody said, well, what in the world is our vision for worship in our church? And that was the only thing I knew. Is, well, I don't know what it really is, but it's got to start somewhere. So it's got to start with us saying, worship really is about the Lord. It's not about me. It's for God first and foremost, period. It's not for me. It's not for me to have an experience. It's not for me to be satisfied first. Because remember, Jesus, when he approached the woman at the well, he said, give me a drink before anything else happened. Before she even got it, said, I need this, I need this water. I need a drink too. He was saying, you satisfy me first, and I'll be satisfied, and you'll be satisfied. You hear what I'm saying to you? Does this make any sense to anybody? So we, we need to stop trying to have a certain experience or a certain type of expression in worship. And we need to get God's corporate order for worship. That's really what we've got to get from the Lord. And let Him uh, put something... All right, this is it. I think God's already put something in us. Okay? And I think if we will go after the real thing that's in us, okay, and quit trying to copy everybody, quit trying to do it like they do it over there, or like they do it there, or like they do it there. Not that you can't learn from them and glean from them, but you can't be them, because that ain't who we are. I was talking to a friend of mine about this, and in their church, they had this rule. You, you know, you can't do any worship songs unless you write. Everybody has to write their own worship songs, period. You're just in trouble if you can't write worship songs. Now you ain't going to do worship. I don't care how good you can do. And I'm thinking, I said, that's, you know, that's sort of what I want to try to do. He said, well, we've been doing that forever. I said, but the problem is, we are not you. And what you're doing is not what God's put in our hearts, even though that's a part of what I believe God wants to do. But we're not you, so we can't go and be you. We can't go and do what you're trying to do in worship. We've got to find out what is it in us that God has placed. And let's do that thing. That will be, that's real worship. That's worshiping God in truth and in spirit. It's not, this is the latest craze, this is the latest going thing, let's do that. Are y'all on that? And that's really what the Lord was trying to say to us last week. He was trying to communicate that to us. And the conviction, when I said I felt conviction, this, I told you clearly last week, I felt convicted because I felt in my life I had received something that didn't belong to me. And, and that was the praise of men. And I had craved people to affirm me, which we all need affirming. I mean, everybody does that, but it's like there's some line you cross in your heart. And I was truly convicted by the Lord that that belonged to Him. I mean, truly, and I couldn't shake it. I just couldn't shake it. I couldn't get it off of me. It was like, Lord, I am in so much trouble with you because most of my life I've been searching for something to satisfy me. And all that time I've been stealing from you. I've been stealing the worship that's due you. I've been stealing the praise that's due you. And I was just in turmoil in my heart. What am I going to do, Lord? What am I going to do? Please have mercy. I said it over and over and over to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to me one day. I woke up, this song ringing in my ears, and I was thinking, I wonder what that song is. 
And the song was a song by Rita Springer called, you know, Holier or something, or You Lord. Y'all know that song? Holier You Lord. Something like that. You know it, Sarah Ruth. And the words went something like this. Let me stick it up there. The words went something like this. Uh, all that has happened in my life up to now, I give it to you. That was one of the phrases. Y'all know that song? All that's happened in my life up to now, I give it to you, Lord. Huh? It all belongs to you. Yeah. All belongs to you, Lord. And uh, that's the other version. That's my version. <laughs> you can leave that one up there. That's, I rewrote the song. I mean... I'm in the songwriting now. I can't do the music part, but I can look at words and start messing with them. But this is what the Lord said. Everything that happened in my life up to now belongs to Him. He said to me this. The only way you can ever fix this about all the things that you did by receiving praise that belong to me is if you give yourself to me totally right now. If you will give yourself totally to me right now, then all that that you received that really belonged to me, I'm going to get it. Y'all got that? Now, it may sense. It was pretty profound to me because, I mean, I then went five, six days, you know, feeling like God's hand was on me and I couldn't get out from under it. And when he said that, it was like set me free. It's like, well, Lord, that's what I want to do right now. I want to get free, Lord. I, all the things that I have brought into myself that really did belong to you, Lord, that really was yours, and the things that I've, I've craved for to affirm me, to, you know, I'm just going to give all that to you right now. And anything that I received in all that in my life, up to this point, going from beginning to end, is now yours. And it was a wonderful moment, but then this is what the Lord said. I want you to give the rest of it to you. And I said, well, what's the rest of it? He said, everything that happens for the rest of your life, I want you to release that to me right now. You go ahead and give me yourself for the rest of your life. If you'll really do that, then you have really worshipped me. You have totally worshipped me. And it was, I mean, I, that doesn't sound profound to me. In fact, it's sort of, I feel like it's sort of injustice to even be saying it like that. But it really totally set me free. Because at that moment, I realized what real worship really was. It really was me just giving myself totally to God. And He was satisfied with that. Right at that moment. It wasn't anything else. And really and truly, when it all comes right down to it, it's not anything else. It really is that, that we totally give ourselves to God. And everything that's in us is His. And that is what worship really is. Therefore, it doesn't matter if they ain't doing the songs I like or the way they're doing the songs because you've given yourself to God. And Arthur Burke, y'all remember Arthur, the old guy who spoke? His, one of his things is when he... And, and I understood what he was saying at that moment. He said, I minister to God before people. I thought, that's what he's saying. He's worshiping. He's worshiping. When he's preaching, he's worshiping. He's not, and he's doing it to God, and it just happens to be in front of people. But that is real worship to him. He's giving God his all. He's giving God the thing that's put in him, that's placed in his life. 
And that's worship. It's not all this other stuff that we've made it to be. Now, it needs to find a true expression in you, however that is, but that's how we worship God. That's how we really worship Him, is by giving ourselves to the Lord, totally and unreservedly. And God receives that as worship. It ain't about how this happens. I mean, it's not about, you know, I mean, I think you've got to work on the music, man. <laughs> you know, but it's not really about all that. You know what I'm saying? It's not about the songs. It's just not about any of that. And we've made it about all of that. And that's why all that doesn't satisfy us. Because we haven't not made it about what it's really about. It's about giving ourselves to Him. And when we do that, all the other stuff will get, you know, work itself out. The bugs will be worked out. The sound levels will be right. The right songs will be sang. You know, you're going to be satisfied deep down in your heart because He's going to satisfy you. He's going to satisfy you. Can we do that song? Now, I have taken liberties with Rita Springer's song, Peter Truth. I took her song. I didn't change the tune to it, but I did change not all the words, but some of the words to this song. And because I felt like that song was the thing that helped free me, okay, of what was going on in my life. And so I changed the title to the song from You Are So Holy to You Are So Worthy. And this is what I'm asking you this morning. Now, I want you to get real with me. I'm not just trying to play preacher stuff on you, okay? This is not trying to play preacher stuff. I, I feel like this is really what the Lord's trying to say to us, okay? I feel like that... I feel like we're offering Jesus polluted worship, Okay? We're, it's polluted with our interests. And God has created us with that need to be fulfilled in worship. But I feel like we've polluted it by trying to get the need met before we really worship Him. And I think if we could just get the order right and worship Him, then the need in your life will get met. The thing that's, that's crying out inside of you. The same thing that was crying out inside the woman at the well that she tried to find in men... She found in Jesus that day. He showed her how to do it. He said, hey, it's not the way you guys, you guys don't even know how to worship. It's not any of that. It's not where you do it at. That's not, that's not what it's all about. That's what he was saying to her. You've got you to gotta get real with me. You've got to get real. And I really believe this. I feel like the Lord saying to me, listen, what you got, if you let that thing come out, what you really got, it's going to work. There's power on it. And there's more that can really be released. And, you know, God can give people who can write songs. I'm not one of them. So let's just do this. Let's worship the Lord with this song. But I think you need to really question yourself about worship this morning and ask Him. So, you know, I don't, I don't really think I'm really saying what the heart of God is here. Okay, I don't really think I'm getting across to you what I really, truly, 100% really feel in my heart. Okay? You would probably get so offended at me if I really said all that I feel that you couldn't stand it. It would just drive you, drive you down. I don't want you to be driven down. I want you to be driven up to God. But I know there's something God is seeking. And so here's the question. Will, we, will He find it with us? Will He find it? Will He? I guess that's the question. Is He going to find it with us?